Welcome to another episode of God and the Paranormal, a podcast exploring the supernatural from a biblical worldview. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Suzanne. And I'm John. Okay, John, why don't we open a big old can of worms in this podcast? <laughs> I'm ready. Or maybe we could just talk about Calvinism and free will, something easy. Why is this topic so controversial? I think it's because it's just blatantly supernatural. And there are those who take it into the crazy supernatural, too, somewhere out there in the twilight zone. Do, 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 do. Is that the twilight zone music? Yeah. Um, our goal in this episode is to offer several opposing sides, all within the pale of traditional Christian beliefs, just to give listeners a base for understanding it. And right from the start, I admit, with this topic, I'm like a kid with a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle just dumped on the table in front of me. Are you a jigsawyer? Is that what it's called? It's what I call it. <laughs> I, I used to do them with my grandmother. And man, that adrenaline dopamine rush you get when a piece fits, you just can't beat it. Is, is that too nerdy? Nah, I kind of feel like Legos are a modern version of the jigsaw puzzle. And those mm -hmm. seem to be really cool right now and not nerdy. Yeah. And just so listeners understand, my mind is still open on this topic. I'm still looking at all these puzzle pieces. And even though I enjoy pondering it, I confess I don't have a solid opinion yet regarding some things in the genre of supernatural. Most of the pieces are still just scattered there on the table in front of me. And with that, I think there are lots of opportunities for people to insert their own opinions. Um, and that that's okay. There is some mystery surrounding this event we're going to talk about. Yeah. And as we said on the previous episode, these podcasts are not intended to sensationalize weird ideas. Today's topic is not one of the essentials of beliefs of the faith, but it certainly does bring up questions, I think, that contribute to our view of reality in, in several ways. So we're discussing this early in the series for two reasons. First, it's actually in the Bible. God uses an economy of words in his holy word. But you can be sure if it's in the Bible, it's not trivial. It's there for a reason. Yeah. And also, a lot of discourse on paranormal things actually references this very topic. Yeah. And not just believers. I hear a lot on the secular side basing ideas on this event. It's a significant part of some people's worldview. I had a pastor once who actually said, I wish God had left out Genesis and Revelation. My job sure would be a lot easier. Wow, I've heard that same sentiment. The Bible begins and ends with the most controversial ideas, doesn't it? Yeah. But you can't pick and choose which part of the Bible to believe. No, and the controversy is because both books are so supernatural. It's what we discussed in episode one. A lot of Christians are okay with a supernatural creation and maybe a supernatural resurrection and maybe mm. a few miracles mixed in here and there, but let's kind of leave it there. We don't want our kids asking questions we can't explain. Let's just keep those things buried in academia somewhere. Well, we're all about excavating the true biblical supernatural. So let's start with what the Bible says about this topic. I'm reading from Genesis 6, 1 through 2. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Those sons of God again. Remember them? 
Oh, yeah. The Bene Elohim. Listeners, you can go back and listen to the second episode for more information on them. Right. The Bene Elohim, or the sons of God, as it translates here, we've discussed this in depth on previous episodes. If we're consistent with other scriptural uses of that term, then these are actual supernatural beings that we're talking about here. Yes. And for a little context, this is after Adam and Eve were expelled from Eden because of their sin. Several generations have passed by now. And as it says, the human population was growing and spreading over the earth. Just what God wanted. Be fruitful and multiply, right? Apparently. And all was going well, as well as possible in a fallen world, I guess, until this passage. So the plain, perspicuous, literal view here seems to have supernatural beings, or as some translations say, angels, marrying human women. Right. Weird. Is that possible? Uh, That's the issue, isn't it? That literal take is just anathema to some people, and it probably is one of the weirdest passages in Scripture. The knee-jerk response is usually for people just to quickly quote Jesus in Matthew 22 and say, well, that can't be true because angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. And that was in the context of answering the Pharisees, right? Yeah. They posed the question trying to trap Jesus. What if a woman had seven husbands in this life? Which would be her husband in heaven? Here's the actual verse, Matthew twenty-two thirty. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Yeah, and the question was, what if the first husband died and she married again, and the second husband yeah. died, and so on and so on. So opponents of this supernatural marriage idea say that this proves it. Angels or supernatural beings in general, they think, can't marry humans, or by association, they certainly can't breed with them and produce offspring. Now, proponents who take the supernatural aspect of these verses raise several valid points, I think. The passage clearly says, angels in heaven. The point could be made that these are not the angels that are in Genesis 6, Mm -hmm. because those aren't angels in heaven. Mm -hmm. We discussed this difference in episode two. Right. And specifically, they're the Bene Elohim, sons of God. And if these are fallen beings, then they wouldn't necessarily be equated with the angels in heaven spoken of by Jesus here. Right. And also, if Jesus was making a statement about the normal nature and behavior of angelic beings, the case could be made that these beings in Genesis 6 are, man, they are anything but normal. This is describing something that is apparently so far from normal and something that's just so abhorrent Mm -hmm. to God that... He clearly condemns it in the verses and eventually destroys the world because of it. And Jesus's point in the context of Matthew was more that marriage had purposes on earth, but the reality of heaven transcends the marriage relationship. Proponents say he wasn't stating a treaty on angels. Right. Most students of the Bible tie this Genesis passage to the New Testament book of Jude. Can you read uh, verses six through seven from Jude? Yeah, Jude um, 6 through 7. And the angels, which did not keep their first estate, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. This does sound like it could be referring to the Genesis 6 account. A lot of people think so. 
it appears these evil angels and remember in the new testament angel is a little bit looser term yeah. so we're talking about supernatural beings but they did something horribly wrong according to this it was so bad that god couldn't even allow them to stay free so he has them already bound up in the abyss or as we'll see later it's called tartarus where the pig demons begged jesus not to send them that's right what we talked about yeah. in an earlier episode yeah Okay. And clearly their sin was definitely sexual in some way. The phrase strange flesh seems to indicate that it was a repulsive, grotesque deviation from the norm in some way. There's a similar passage in 1 Peter 3. Could you read that also? Yes. 1 Peter 3.20. Because, understood the spirits in prison, formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So these verses do sound at least consistent with the Genesis 6 passage. Mm -hmm. The problem, though, is still with how a human angel mating or marriage was possible. Did the sons of God take on human-like bodies? That's been proposed as one possibility, or that fallen spirits could have just possessed the bodies of existing human men. So a human woman married a demon with a body or a demon-possessed human man? That's pretty strange. <laughs> yeah. And as weird as this version sound, it's it's not new. It was really the primary view of Second Temple Jews and also early church leaders like Josephus and Tertullian, Arrhenius, Justin Martyr, Clement, Origen, all the guys. They all interpreted this as human women and evil supernatural entities. And also the translators of the Septuagint in the third century, when they translated into Greek, they just translated the term sons of God simply as angels. That was their belief. So going back to the Genesis 6 verses, just a straightforward reading, I can see how it might be contrasting two groups, God's side versus man's side, sons of God versus daughters of man. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. And that's what most proponents say. There's no indication of either group coming from Seth or Cain at this point. And we'll see see that later in some other views. Then the non-supernatural interpretation started more recently in time. Well, Augustine came along and said that this couldn't be a supernatural event. He thought it was just way too weird. (laughs) So the medieval church picked up on his view. And and then Luther comes along and kind of went that way, too. And the idea got another boost from him. Mainline churches today, though, still go with this less controversial, non-supernatural view for the most part. And although not a majority, a significant proportion of evangelicals today still consider the sons of God to be supernatural. And this doesn't by any means prove that it's right, but it's accepted by our contemporaries such as David Jeremiah, Al Mohler, Mark Hitchcock, uh, the late Michael Heiser, and also Francis Schaeffer. So these are not heretics. And from what I've experienced, most Christian leaders just ignore it or try not to talk about it, at least in proper church circles anyway. I remember a kid bringing it up to me in my high school geometry class, and I was like, what are you talking about? And then um, I went home and I read and it was there in the Bible. Yeah, generally it's one of those hush-hush subjects. And the reasoning is usually, like we say, it's just way too supernatural or I don't understand it, so I'm just going to not think about it. So what do you do with these verses if the beings are not supernatural? We're giving a lot of detail, I know, to the supernatural version here because 
it's complicated and it has a lot of worldview connections to, as we said, some alleged paranormal topics that we'll come into. It may seem a little biased right now, but the the non-supernatural explanations are really a lot simpler and they don't mm-hmm. really have a lot of cross-referencing with verses. Um, I don't say that as a criticism. It's just the nature of the arguments. They're certainly possible, and a lot of Christians do accept them, but they do tend to be mostly drawn from just rationalization and not really exegesis of the the actual verses there. Um, And it's purposefully played down to some extent. Give it a non-supernatural stamp, then move on to the next chapter Mm -hmm. so we don't have to think about it too long. Yeah, I think so. One non-supernatural option probably the most common of this is the Sethite view named after Adam's son, Seth. And this, this says that the sons of God were only righteous descendants of Seth and that the women here are the unrighteous daughters of Cain. So Mm. you've got Cain girls corrupting the Seth boys (laughs) and, and God didn't like that. I feel like that's a lot of inferring, Um, but Mm -hmm. taken to its logical conclusion Intermarriage between the righteous and the unrighteous was so bad that it caused God to destroy humankind in the flood. That's true. Although there doesn't seem to have been any general prohibition to these two lines intermarrying here, that came uh, a lot later after Babel. And if these sons of God are the line of Seth, does it imply that all the men in Seth's line participated? Plus, Adam and Eve had other sons with descendants in addition to Seth. I've also heard of another interpretation the human ruler view where sons of God refers to Kings and leaders who took these wives. Yeah. And the assumption here has to be that these were polygamous marriages. That's, that's what angered God. Are rulers ever called sons of God in the Bible? Uh, Not by that phrase in scripture. There's some evidence that some middle Eastern cultures consider their rulers gods, but no, it's not really a biblical term for rulers. And let me be clear here. All three of these interpretations are feasible, although only one of them could be true, obviously. Um, I think all three have strength and all three have weaknesses, but that's okay. You can believe any or none of these and still not be a fanatic or a heretic. (laughs) These are non-essential biblical concepts. It doesn't mean it's not important, but it's not crucial to understand it completely in order to be a believer or to live a righteous life. Right. It's not something that should divide believers and cause us a lot of stress. I'm glad you brought that up. That's a really good point. Um, We're also about to look at a lot of ideas that derive from this passage in Genesis. And the views expressed on this show are not necessarily the views of John and Suzanne. And we may even disagree with each other. (laughs) Uh, More than likely. Because some of these next ideas might be a little fringy, but they are just discussion points. We and our listeners are civilized people. We can discuss this in a civilized way. Hopefully. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just kidding. And the reason we discuss this topic at all is because it's part of the contemporary Christian discourse. Yeah. And not just Christian. It's become a big part of the secular paranormal discourse on Mm -hmm. this kind of thing. There are a lot of paranormal enthusiasts who may not know much about the Bible at all, but man, they know this Genesis 6 passage by heart and they base parts of their worldview on it. Mm -hmm. At some paranormal science fiction conventions, not that I've ever attended any of those. Oh, of course not. (laughs) Anyway. I've actually seen this topic become a bridge for sharing scripture truth. It's easy to go from something like 
What do you think about Genesis 6 to, you know, that passage is interesting. God is patient. And isn't it amazing that he provides a way to save evil people from their sin? Mm. I found that many secular paranormal enthusiasts are just diligently seeking the truth. That's that's probably what personality quirk that makes people search for paranormal things, that they actually mm-hmm. are looking for truth in something. But they're usually quite open to hearing other people's ideas about it, too, I've noticed. Yeah. That's really good. So now that we have all three primary interpretations of the sons of God, let's dig into the rest of the account. In Genesis 6, 3, it says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. It seems like God is not pleased, and I assume it goes back to the previous verses. I think so. It sounds like God is going to postpone judgment of these outrageous sins for 120 years. And that could be from the time of this event until the flood? Yeah. If Noah started the ark around this time, that would fit about 120 Mm -hmm. years. Okay. Another jump to the next verse, Genesis 6, 4. There were Nephilim in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. The same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. So the drama builds here. Oh, yeah. And the number of interpretations and disagreements. Yeah. So first question, who are the Nephilim? Uh, don't look that up on the Internet because you'll get <laughs> billions of hits. Everybody oh. out there has an opinion on this. Yes. One yes. interpretation bases the name Nephilim on Nephal, which in Hebrew uh, remember, they only have consonants and no vowels. And so yes. nafal, we don't exactly know what it means. It could either mean fallen one or to fall upon one or like to pounce on something. So mm-hmm. this could make Nephilim mean just like a very intimidating warrior or something like that. And that's usually how those with the non-supernatural view of the sons of God take it, that it's just a regular man who's just really good at being a soldier. Okay. Other Hebrew scholars, though, say that Nephilim wouldn't be the actual way that you would pronounce the noun that would come from the word nephal. So they would suggest that it's more likely from the Aramaic word for giant, which sounded more like nephilim, if you said it properly. And some translations of scripture do use the word giants. Right. And also when the word is used through the rest of scripture, it seems to almost always be associated with giants in some way. Uh, like in Numbers 13.33, it says, And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. Mm. And that was, you know, going into the promised land. Now, yeah. notice another thing in this verse. The daughters of men gave birth to children as the result of the sons of God's activities. And these children became mighty men and were men of old, the men of renown. Or to paraphrase, legendary great men. Are these the Nephilim? Another point of difference, because some people see that these mighty men could be equated with the Nephilim. And we don't know. The phrasing is kind of unclear right now. So it's difficult to determine whether the Nephilim simply are there simultaneously with this event, or if they were the result of the event, the children of these unions. Yeah, that's right. And if you say the sons of God are supernatural entities, then we might expect these hybrid children to be genetically weird. So could the terms Nephilim or mighty men of renown refer to the uniqueness of these hybrid children? 
did the demon's contribution cause the genetics for giantism in some way? And if your view of all of this is the non-supernatural, you probably wouldn't expect these children to be anything other than fully human. Yeah. Although raised by terribly ungodly parents. Yeah, just very sinful human people. And the non-supernatural view sometimes sees the proliferation of these ungodly family lines. That's the reason why God eventually destroys them in the flood. But back to the supernatural view of the sons of God. If the women mated with demon-possessed human men, that wouldn't necessarily cause genetic strangeness in the children, would it? I wouldn't think so. And that point has been raised. Would the body of a possessed person have different DNA? And I can't think of any reason why that would be true. Also, if the demon materialized in a human body, would that body have human DNA? Would God allow a demon to create a physical body that copied the DNA that he had put in humans? And obviously, there's no way to answer that. Um, and could the sons of God literally create a human body? We know that angels that spoke with Abraham and Lot appeared to be in human-like bodies. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm assuming these righteous angels didn't possess a human-like in demon possession. No, I wouldn't think so. If they had a non-human form and it was a physical body, would it have a different DNA? Yeah, who knows? And that's the point here. If scripture doesn't say it, we just don't know. But having said that, I don't think there's anything heretical or, or even improper about asking questions like this or discussing possibilities. We just have to keep our speculations lined up with what truth we do know about Scripture. Right. And in the world of paranormal pundits, this is an ongoing discussion. This idea of possibly paranormal, hybrid, genetically altered humans <laughs> is yeah. a common topic. It's also a good X-Files plot. <laughs> yes, it very much is. It's called transhumanism, and it's also a good example of why we bring these ideas up and offer the various views. A lot of paranormal entities we'll look at are often explained by some people as some weird genetic aberration and something of transhumanism. Mm -hmm. You mix this in with ancient history and extraterrestrials, and man, it's going to be on the History Channel next week, probably. <laughs> right. Okay, let's back out of this quagmire while we still can. The whole thrust of this passage, whatever side issues it brings up, is to present the evilness and rebellion of humankind that led God to wipe the earth clean and start over. Sin is bad. God is totally righteous and hates sin. Yet in love, he still makes a way to save people. Allow me to put one foot back into the quagmire for a minute. Oh, come on. <laughs> Many who take a supernatural view of the sons of God and that the children of this union are bad, genetically altered, transhuman, Nephilim. Uh, they claim that the flood was so urgent because God had to punish, or not just punish the rampant sin that was there, but he also had to destroy these new hybrid lines and possibly get rid of that demonic genetic DNA stuff that was there. I know that's extreme, but that's definitely an idea that's passed around out there. So the flood was meant to destroy every trace of demonic or fallen DNA, if there was such a thing, um, yeah. and to preserve the human DNA that he originally made. Right. That kind of helps me frame the the flood a little bit clearer, and it makes more sense to me in that, in that framing. And possibly some people suggest the reason God wanted some of the Canaanite cities completely destroyed. And proponents of this view say that it wasn't just the attraction to the human women that initiated this, 
ultimately, it could have been that Satan was allegedly attempting to thwart God's promise that the seed of Eve would eventually reverse the effects of Adam's sin. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, speaking to Satan and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And theologians note that Satan may have tried several times to eliminate this threat of the future Messiah or Savior. Remember Haman trying to kill all the Jews? Right. And Herod ordering all the Hebrew boys killed. And Mm -hmm. even the death of Jesus, I think Satan and his demons probably thought that they were winning and actually stopping this prophecy. And theoretically, if every human was eventually tainted by inheriting non-human genetics, then there couldn't be a true seed of Eve. Thus, God was purifying the human race before this could happen. So we're trying to get all those Genesis 6 worms stuffed back into the can. I'm still thinking about the Nephilim and giants. Numbers 13 mentions the Nephilim, and that was after the flood. If all life was destroyed by the flood except Noah's family, why are there still Nephilim? Another good question. And that could be what Genesis 6-4 is saying. There were Nephilim in the earth in those days and also after that. Is that what this means here? That sounds consistent with the Nephilim simply equated with mighty men and not freakish hybrids. Yeah, and that's possible, although the numbers passage and others seem to indicate something that's more unusual and awesome than than just a warrior. Those who say Nephilim were human-demon hybrids offer several possibilities, though, for a post-flood Nephilim. For example, did they somehow escape the flood? I mean, there seems to be some scriptural issues with that. Yeah, it sounds like it describes the flood destroying everything. Was the flood just a local flood, as liberal theologians claim? The Nephilim just moved up to higher ground somewhere. And I still feel like I have some scriptural problems with that. Local floods, no. Did some of Noah's family carry Nephilim DNA? And did they carry it through the flood? Maybe one of the boys' wives had Nephilim Mm -hmm. genes that kept it going. I guess that's possible. That statement still kind of irks me, though, a little bit. Um, Could the sons of God, daughters of men event have happened again after the flood? Yeah, that's been suggested, and I think that's probably the most likely one. The when in Genesis 6-4, if you look at that verse, could be translated whenever. Then the passage would read, there were Nephilim in the earth in those days and also after that, whenever the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men. Interesting. Anyway, we'll leave the sons of God ideas floating around for now. Obviously, there are giants in the Bible. Scripture makes a point to note that. And sometimes they're called Nephilim. And not just really tall people either with hormone problems. (laughs) There was something fearsome about the giants. And there were even family lines and tribes of giants. So uh, I I would think it's something hereditary and something very significant. I have heard some skeptics say that these could have been only in the six to seven-ish foot range. And since average people back then were around five feet, these would have just seemed slightly abnormal. But by those terms, I'm a dwarf giant. (laughs) (laughs) We really don't know for sure what the average height was back then. And we really can't answer this question, but uh, we have a few clues. First Samuel said that King Saul was head Mm -hmm. and shoulders above the crowd. So that would make him probably 
pretty close to seven feet. And it never calls King Saul a giant. There was a seven and a half foot man mentioned in First Chronicles 11, and they didn't call him a giant. So I think it may be just that avoidance of the unusual again. The taller the giant, the more it implies something that's kind of supernatural. So, you know, let's keep them as small as possible to mm-hmm. controversy. And when giants are encountered, it's kind of like angels. People uh-huh. are awed and fearful. Yeah, that's right. They likely weren't in the 50-foot range, like Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. Awesome <laughs> science fiction movie, by the way. But apparently big enough to be considered abnormal and, and scary. And if it's any indicator, different translations put Goliath himself at either four cubits or six cubits. So at the bottom end, that would make him seven feet tall. And at the top end, 10 feet tall, depending on the translation. Uh, I, I kind of tend to go with the larger height for two reasons. Seven feet would have been pretty close to Saul. And the context seems to indicate that Goliath was way out of league for the mm. Israeli troops here. And so mm. if Saul was about the same size, that wouldn't wouldn't make Goliath that threatening. And also, it very clearly says that he carried 200 pounds of weapons wow. and armor. So imagine even a seven-foot person wow. carrying that much weight. And his spear was 12 feet long. And the tip of it weighed 16 pounds. So if you really start thinking about that, even a seven foot man with a 16 pound weight on the end of a 12 foot stick, that's not really proportional. And it it, it just seems like it would make more sense for a 10 footer. Yeah, that's really good. Um, And the whole point of the account, Israel needed God's help to win this confrontation. There was no chance Goliath could have defeated otherwise. Mm Mm-hmm. That almost feels, again, like a spiritual battle, not just a physical battle. Like, it, it, it would does. make sense if we were kind of framing it with the Nephilim here, but that's just a side opinion. Yeah. Let's see what scripture says about giants. It's surprising how abundant giants are in the Old Testament. They were everywhere, apparently. Yeah, they're much more common. I started doing a study on that several years ago, and they're just all over the place. The Israelites actually had to battle several groups of giants Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Exodus. I won't go into all the long list of scripture verses here. I would encourage listeners to do that, though. Get a concordance and and just check the word giant sometime. But there were several tribes of giants. Some of them were called Rephaim. That was kind of a mm-hmm. general word in addition to Nephilim. Listen to what Genesis 14 says. This describes just the battles with some of the people. They battled with the Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Emim, and the ever-popular Amorites. Those were mentioned about 80 times in the Old Testament. And there in Genesis, it doesn't identify them as giants. You have to do a lot of cross-referencing to put those pieces together. And in a lot of cases, God himself actually came, and it says he drove the tribes Mm -hmm. out. There wasn't even a battle, which, you know, we've already seen. that It would have been a hard thing to defeat a bunch of giants, probably. Right. And that also helps me frame these passages of Bible again. Mm-hmm. If I understand that maybe they were in pure human race or something. Um, there yeah. were also the Anakim, the descendants of Anak, yeah. not uh-huh. to be confused with the Star Wars boy. <laughs> oh, yeah. These must have been the prototypical giants because it always says the other giants, they're described as being as large as the Anakim. So if you want to say something is a giant, you just say they're large like the Anakim. Interesting. Um, there's also my favorite, King Og, 
who was the last surviving giant of the Amorites. It says his bed was 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. Probably hard to find some sheets for that. Have you ever considered naming a kid Og? No. (laughs) (laughs) And later at the time of Saul, we've already mentioned Goliath. He was from the city of Gath and actually fighting with the Philistines. So he probably had moved from Gath at some point and intermingled, or maybe his mother was a a Philistine. And he had at least four brothers. So likely a genetic thing, or mom was a really good cook. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and this is all in 2 Samuel 21. It also says their father was a giant, and at least one of the brothers, those four brothers he had, had six digits on each hand and foot. Mm. So that's genetically quirky. Likely a good harpist. I would imagine. Uh, six digits, incidentally, is associated with giant folklore all over different continents. Yeah, um, that's right. If you can step back into the quagmire, I'm letting just one little worm back out of the can. Okay. What about extra biblical giants? It seems like giants are part of every culture, you know, just like we said with Ghost. We've got Gilgamesh, who actually was Nimrod, we think, in the mm. Bible. And we've got the Greek Cyclops and lots of Native American giants and Middle Mm -hmm. Eastern giants and Asian lore about giants everywhere. But we have a biblical precedent for giants. We know they are a historical fact. So it's no wonder that other cultures would note them. So do you think that any giants have survived to the present then? I mean, this whole conversation is kind of blowing my mind, but lots of podcasts and conspiracy theories seem to think the giants are still out there. Yeah. If you listen to the fringe media out there, it's a very common topic today. Yeah. Uh, there are some interesting accounts floating around too. Recently, soldiers in Kandahar, Afghanistan, the claim is by several of the soldiers that they killed a 13-foot, six-fingered, red-haired giant wow. there in one of the caves. And they say the military just swept the body away in a helicopter and no one saw it after that. That's one of those conspiracies still floating around. Um, there's also dozens of different Native American tribes with legends of giants, the Navajo, Cherokee, Creek, Choctaw, Chickasaw, and Apache. It's a very common myth, or we say a myth, in so many different tribes, and that's kind of what makes it a little bit more believable, maybe. Uh, even Buffalo Bill Cody wrote about a giant skeleton that he was taken to and shown by some of the tribal leaders there. Wow. And surprisingly, Native American legends are, like I said, they're kind of consistent in describing these giants. In most cases, it was a light skin, red-haired, six fingers, as you said, 10 to 20 footer with, get this, a double row of teeth or with two double rows of teeth. And usually they were cannibals. And that's why tribal lore usually says that they had to exterminate them. They didn't want to be eaten. So just like kind of in the Bible, the tribes are fighting the giants. The Native Americans were also fighting the giants. Yeah, much the same. So is it possible those were the some of the descendants? Another question is, how did they get over to North America? That's that's part of the theories that you hear floating around, too, that people from other continents actually came over. And we're pretty sure they did. We're pretty sure the Native Americans crossed a land bridge from Asia at some point. Hmm. Well, I don't know about you, but I think if I told my kids that there was a cannibal, red-haired, six-fingered, double-row-teeth giant out there, that would definitely keep them home. (laughs) Yeah, it would work. And interestingly, some tribes claim that the old Hollywood Indian thing, you know, holding up your palm and saying how, 
that stereotypical thing. Yeah. Uh, that was actually some tribal leaders say to show that you didn't have six fingers. Whoa, that's crazy. Yeah. So you were trustable if you weren't related to the giants. Do Is there any fossil evidence? That's one of those things that depends on who you ask. The backstory is usually that when evidence is found, the Smithsonian or the government or some other agency rushes in and takes it and you never see it again. Why do you think that is? Uh, who knows? I mean, it could be a conspiracy theory, but I would imagine if if a truly large skeleton was found, I could sort of see the secular world of academia that I know. They would they would actually see that as a threat. It pretty much dismisses any biblical peculiarities anyway. Yeah, and I also kind of feel like it kind of dismisses mainstream evolutionary theory or it upsets it if there were bigger people before us. Right. Um, yeah, there's but, a lot of problems in archaeology if you said that there were races of people that we we have to now factor into the other races that we think were there. Do you think recent or extinct giants are possible? If they did exist at one time, it's probably not impossible that some could have survived. Certainly more possible than a real paranormal ghost, I would think. Mm. I, I do see problems with a group of huge people staying hidden from everybody for mm -hmm. a long period of time. Although, I guess they're not staying hidden, are they? If so many people claim to have seen them. <laughs> I don't know. I'll just say the scientist part of me wants to see and examine a real body, I think. Or, or at least a real skeleton. I think I would be terrified to see a real giant and a real giant skeleton. Yeah. Okay, well, we just covered a lot of interesting ground. I may be reading folk tales and fairy tales a little differently now, <laughs> <laughs> looking for clues about giants. Next week, a bit of a dessert in this ongoing paranormal feast. It's what you've all been waiting for. You ready? Yay. Bigfoot. The big guy himself. I can't wait. Yes, it'll be good. If you would like to comment or ask questions, or if you have some ideas about what we uh, talked about today, because it was pretty loaded, please send us an email at godandtheparanormal at gmail.com. Or if you want to share an experience about anything we talk about or have suggestions about future episodes, please let us know. You can also get more information at our website, thinkingaboutthebible.com. If you found this podcast useful or interesting, please share it with others. You can now search for us on most major podcast platforms such as Amazon Music, Spotify, iTunes, Pandora, and others. And also our YouTube format has a video component for each podcast with verses, charts, and outlines. So that one is probably your best option. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.